I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In 1903, a stranger crossed the 49th parallel into British Columbia. That stranger was a product of the Wild West, yet he lived in a time when the Wild West was fading, and by the time he crossed into Canada, the Wild West in the United States was just a memory. Yet, the Wild West as he knew it was not yet dead in Canada's westernmost province. While British Columbia certainly had its urban centers in Victoria, Vancouver, New Westminster, much of the rest of the province was only just being settled by small communities of ranchers and miners and folks just trying to make a living for themselves. Infrastructure was sparse, municipal services were almost non-existent, and many people lived in a fashion that this newly arrived stranger would have recognized from his own days in the American West. In the early 20th century, gun-toting cowboys, saloons, ranch feuds, criminals, people running from their past, and pioneers seeking to create their own Garden of Eden, all intermingled in British Columbia's interior, where the Canadian law was only just arriving. The stranger that crossed the 49th parallel was running from a long criminal history, and he sought to continue his ways in the Wild West province of British Columbia. This is Season 6, Episode 13, Bill Minor, The Gentleman Robber, Part 1. There have been a couple of biographies on Bill Miner over the years, but the recommendation today is one titled Interred with Their Bones, Bill Miner in Canada. This was written by Peter Grauer and was published in 2006 by Partners in Publishing. Ezra Allen Miner, who later got the nickname Bill, was probably born in 1847 in Bowling Green, Kentucky. 
Now, we don't know much about Miner's early days, but we do know that he eventually ended up in California as a cowboy working on cattle ranches. He then spent some time as a mail courier, where during this time he became quite familiar with stagecoach routes throughout California. Now, eventually, he abandoned this respectable work and started robbing those stagecoaches. He robbed so many that it was said that he was the one who actually invented the term hands up. Miner was not, however, the most successful criminal. He was caught numerous times. He served time in San Quentin State Prison on four different occasions. And each time he was imprisoned, he tried to escape. Finally, his fourth sentence resulted in him receiving 25 years, a combination of his incessant stagecoach robbing and frequent escape attempts. After serving 21 of those years, Miner was released, and it didn't take long before he returned to his criminal ways. However, by the early 1900s, it was no longer stagecoaches he was robbing, it was trains. While Miner was in prison, the U.S. had experienced a massive explosion in railroad construction. And inspired by criminals like Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, and others, Miner put together his own gang and began attacking America's railroads. After some initial success, Miner botched a train robbery in Oregon. And with one of his gang members killed and the other wounded, Miner fled the country, crossing into British Columbia in late 1903, with the law hot on his heels. Now, Miner first arrived in the small town of Princeton, roughly 280 kilometers east of Vancouver. It was a surprisingly bustling town for such a small one, nestled where the Tulamine and Similkameen rivers converged. Ranchers and fruit farmers operated in the valley surrounding the town, Mining operations for copper and coal worked in and around the rivers, while railroad workers working for the Great Northern Railway were helping to connect the region to the United States and eastwards into the Kootenays and the rest of the country. Its main street was full of shops, restaurants, saloons, and brothels. Princeton was connected to the outside world through a series of wagon roads heading north to Kamloops, east to Penticton, and south to the U.S., where they would eventually link with the railroads. In order to get the lay of the land, Miner quickly found work on a local ranch. The man who hired him was Jack Budd. Budd was, like Miner, an escaped convict, who had fled to the Similkameen region being chased by a sheriff's posse from Washington State. Despite their shared background, Miner did not reveal his real name. Instead, he introduced himself as George Edwards, a name he would keep for his entire tenure in Canada. Miner was hired by Bud just at a time when anger was rising between those cattle ranchers who advocated for open range, something Bud was strongly in favor of, and the newer, larger cattle companies who sought to fence off their land. Midnight raids were common between rival ranchers, knocking down fences and spooking cattle, generally causing a headache for the cowboys waking up the next day. 
Bud was also very well known for skirting the law when it came to horses and cattle, and it was not uncommon for him to lead rustling expeditions to increase the size of his own stock, something Miner showed to have absolutely no problem with. Despite his attachments to Bud, Miner ingratiated himself with other members of the local community. He was extremely friendly. He was very courteous with women, well-dressed, well-spoken, and always seemingly willing to converse with just about anybody. He also had no problem spending money, be it at local businesses or in the local saloons. As well, he took a number of odd jobs. He helped transport cattle, worked on irrigation projects. He even ran a gang of Chinese laborers that had recently been laid off by the CPR. In fact, when Miner was working for the Douglas Lake Cattle Company, one of the largest cattle companies in British Columbia that was operating out of the Nicola Valley near modern-day Kamloops, a wagon driven by Miner crashed, and this resulted in the death of two Chinese laborers. When Miner found out that the Chinese blamed him and were planning on retaliation, Miner was forced to flee back to Bud's ranch within the safe confines of the Similkamine Valley. Despite the fact that it seemed like Miner had found a new home and had settled into a life of honest work, the entire time he was using his penchant for travel, his odd jobs, to scout for better cash-making opportunities. In the summer of 1904, finding no real opportunities for a criminal of his stature, he traveled into the Fraser Valley, visiting the growing towns of Hope, Chilliwack, Mission, and followed the Fraser River right into Langley, New Westminster, and even briefly visited the booming new city of Vancouver. Now, Miner often ended up living in tents, and he survived by purchasing goods from local stores or even going straight up to farmhouses to pay for those goods. By all accounts, Miner was peaceful and friendly as he roamed the land. Yet all of this was a cover. You see, most of these towns had one thing in common. They were all on a CPR rail line. Miner was particularly interested in the fact that gold was still coming down from the Caribou, from places like Barkerville, and most of it was being transported via a CPR express train. By the end of that summer, Miner had developed a plan. In the early evening of Saturday, September 10th, Miner and two nefarious associates crossed to the north side of the Fraser River near the small farming village of Silverdale, where they lay in wait. Several hours later, CPR's Transcontinental Express No. 1 rolled to a halt at the water tower near where Miner and his gang were lying in wait. The train carried CPR crew, laborers, passengers, and gold. As the CPR crew went about their business, Three masked men emerged from the darkness and stealthily climbed to the roof of the train without being noticed. The number one started up again, and about five minutes after leaving the water tower, Miner snuck into the engineer carriage, pointed a pistol at the engineer and his fireman, and ordered them to stop the train. 
As heads begin to poke out of the train carriages, Miner and his associates threatened to shoot anybody who peeked out again, and all the heads quickly returned inside. Most of the CPR crew were incredulous at the demands of their masked bandits. The simple fact was a CPR train had never been robbed before in British Columbia. Passengers on the train began to hide their valuables. A judge from New Westminster, who was also armed, prepared to make an armed stand and the doors were barricaded. However, after a number of minutes, it was clear that the bandits weren't really interested in the passengers at all. In fact, the bandits ordered one of the CPR employees to uncouple the passenger cars from the others. To the passenger's shock, the bandits boarded the train and them and the crew took off, leaving the passenger cars behind in the darkness. About eight kilometers further down the line, the train was stopped once more. This time, the bandits focused their attention on the safe in the express car. Threatening to blow everybody up with a bag of dynamite, they convinced the CPR watchman to open it up. $6,000 in gold dust and about $1,000 in cash was sitting inside. After grabbing the loot, the bandits then moved into the mail car, where they snatched up a couple of sacks of mail and then disappeared into the night. Not before Miner returned a gold watch and cash to the engineer, though, apparently telling him he was not interested in any man's money that worked for wages. Word of the robbery got back to CPR officials immediately, and they were shocked. They were stunned. Across the lower mainland, police forces and CPR security began the manhunt for the three masked bandits. By the morning of the 11th of September, trackers had concluded that the robbers had escaped via the Fraser River after stealing a local fishing boat. By the 12th of September, all of the province was abuzz with the news of the first ever robbery of a CPR train. While the police interviewed all the people involved, the passengers and personnel, no one could provide any serious description of the men. Bill Miner, for instance, was pegged as a 40-year-old when he was actually 58, despite the fact that $7,500 in reward money was offered, very few reliable clues were coming in. In fact, the manhunt was so perplexing that the CPR needed outside help, and they brought in the Pinkertons Agency, a private security company from the U.S., and an agency that Miner had been on the run from before. By the 13th of September, there were nearly three dozen men on the case. Posses were ranging up and down the Fraser River, and even efforts on the American side of the border. There is evidence to suggest that the Pinkerton agents concluded it was indeed the work of Bill Miner, though the Canadian police were hesitant to commit to him being the main suspect. Yet, news of the rumor of Bill Miner got out in the press, and soon BC newspapers were reporting him as the main suspect all throughout the land. Yet the investigation was getting colder and colder, and within a week of the robbery, the conclusion by lead investigators was that Miner and his accomplices had escaped back to the United States. Folks, before we continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal 
or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate five bucks for every episode, well, Patreon allows you to do that. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this podcast. On another note, and I promise folks I will not keep hammering this home, but my book, Civilians at the Sharp End, is out right now. You can purchase the book on Amazon, if you so choose, by searching Civilians in the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe, or you could go down to your local bookstore. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, I bet they will be more than happy to order it for you. Thank you so much for everyone who's purchased the book. I hope you enjoy it. I hope those of you keep picking it up and happy reading. Now back to our show. As for Bill Miner and his comrades, they didn't go back to the United States. In fact, they sailed west along the Fraser River for a few hours before landing back on shore. In the very early hours of the morning the next day, the three then split their loot and went separate ways. Miner actually ended up in the town of Chilliwack, where he met up with his old buddy, Jack Budd. Now, if Budd knew anything about the robbery, he certainly didn't let on. And interestingly, as Miner was meeting up with Budd, a police investigator was also in the town asking around. Unbeknownst to Miner, one of his accomplices had ridden into the very same town earlier in the day and checked into a different hotel. The hotel manager noticed the man was carrying gold and was acting in a nervous manner. Early the next morning, the stranger left town. But many in Chilliwack were now on the lookout for any other outsiders, outsiders like Bill Miner. Meanwhile, Bill Miner had sort of set up shop at a local pool room where he spent the next few days casually hanging about and playing poker. Oddly, two of his most consistent poker opponents were undercover CPR detectives. Miner was definitely a stranger and he had definitely rolled into town with a little bit of loose money. He fit the profile of the type of person the authorities were looking for. Yet, Miner spent days in Chilliwack, showing no sign of panic or nervousness. His affable and friendly nature blended in well, and soon he was making friends with all the locals. Even when more investigators arrived in Chilliwack, after having patrolled the Similkamine Valley, there seemed to be little motivation to go after Bill Miner, or George Edwards as he was known in town. Two weeks after the robbery, And after spending an entire week in Chilliwack, after interacting with police investigators, Miner packed up and left town. So casually did he spend that week in Chilliwack, nobody considered him a real suspect. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Now, interestingly, Miner enjoyed his time in Chilliwack so much that he actually returned several times before the end of the year. Most of the locals had accepted this George Edwards fellow as just another hardworking man trying to carve out a living in the West. Yet, one character in Chilliwack refused to accept this George Edwards, and that was the hotel owner, who had previously, though briefly, encountered one of Miner's train-robbing associates in the days following the CPR robbery. In fact, when the hotel owner started to grill Miner on who he actually was, Miner lost his temper. He showed the hotel owner his two pistols on both of his hips, and in no uncertain terms made it clear he was not to question the integrity of George Edwards anymore. The hotel owner acquiesced. During that late fall and early winter, investigators continued to come through Chilliwack and elsewhere in the interior looking for suspects and clues, but Miner had skipped well below the radar. Yet Miner also understood that he was playing with fire being in such a busy place, and despite the heavy snow of that winter, Miner returned once again to the Similkameen Valley. One would think he would lay low now, hang out, relax, enjoy his spoils, but instead Miner became a key figure in the local social scene. He was known to host dances, spend generously, and dance rigorously, and flirt successfully. At the same time that Miner was enjoying a fairly pleasant winter in the interior of BC, the region was undergoing dramatic change. Electric telegraph lines were now being connected throughout. More and more people were moving into the region, so much so that more provincial police constables were being appointed to the various townships in the area. Many of these constables would later play a key role in the next hunt for Bill Miner. Now, Miner had to be careful in his own backyard as the Similkameen and Nicola Valleys, which connected from south to north respectively, were now being brought into the modern world with all the modern expectations of law and order. This also meant that Miner could now be kept abreast of up-to-date information regarding the hunt for the CPR bandits. Once the snow cleared in May, Miner once again went back to traveling throughout the interior, working odd jobs for various ranchers, all the while scouting for his next big score. By now, Miner was known throughout the rural communities in south-central BC, or what is referred to as the Thompson-Okanagan region. Now, in the autumn of 1905, Miner drove a large herd of horses from Washington State into the farming community of Ladner, British Columbia, right along the Canadian-U.S. border. He hired two young men, brothers, to help him with the herd. It just so happened that the young men were the sons of the local sheriff, a man named Joseph Jordan. Miner, however, became pretty close with both of the lads, even taking the eldest one drinking in dance halls down in Washington State. However... A tense moment in Miner's life occurred when the youngest of the Jordan boys was bucked off his horse. The youngest boy hit his head on a fence post and was knocked into a coma for two days. During those two days, Miner, still posing as George Edwards, sat by the boy's bed and told his father that he felt responsible as the boy was hurt working for him. 
As Sheriff Jordan and Bill Miner got to know each other, Jordan noticed a peculiar faded tattoo on the base of Miner's thumb. This feature was also mentioned in reports on the potential suspect for the CPR robbery. Sheriff Jordan figured he might have Bill Miner right in front of him, yet the sheriff was also quite taken aback with how this George Edwards character had stuck by his son's bed while his son recovered. Sheriff Jordan thus made an incredible decision. He ignored what he had seen. As far as his boys were concerned, this George Edwards was a good man, and this Edwards had shown kindness to the boys. Thus, after selling off most of the herd, Miner drove the remaining horses back into the interior in September of that year. Sheriff Jordan and the two boys, the youngest now fully recovered, waved goodbye, despite the two brothers wanting to join Edwards. Their father obviously refused. Miner escaped the law once again. It was certainly for the better, because in mid-October, Bill Miner returned to Washington State and robbed a Great Northern Railway train near Seattle. A few days after the robbery, Miner was back in B.C., buying drinks, working odd jobs, spending lengthy periods at local saloons and dance halls, and traveling from small town to small town, visiting his now many friends. Anyone who ever asked Miner where he got his cash would hear his usual excuse. He got lucky in a gold find in Mexico and a silver vein in Washington State. And as he bought another round of drinks, no more questions were asked. It was in April of 1906 that once again Miner's restless nature got the better of him. Miner and a couple of associates headed into the area of Kamloops, British Columbia, which was right along this main CPR line heading towards Vancouver. They spent late April camped in the bush, scouting rail lines, developing escape plans, putting together a detailed itinerary of train times, and waiting for the right moment. Just like the first robbery way back in September 1904, Miner was going to make sure this one was well-planned and well-executed. He even occasionally stopped into the local CPR stations to befriend unsuspecting CPR employees, as well as to get a better sense of schedules and potential cargo. It's important to keep in mind that it was impossible for Miner and his two associates to stay completely hidden. They were spotted by and interacted with numerous folks who lived in the region near Kamloops, in the heart of ranching country. They would, for instance, often approach farmhouses and buy groceries and tobacco and other sorts of goods from local ranching families. Regardless, they bid their time. And then they struck on the 8th of May. It was that evening that CPR train number 97 pulled slowly away from the Shushwap Lakes, headed west towards Kamloops. The train consisted of its steam engine, an express car, a mail car, a baggage car, dining and passenger cars, and one of the cars even contained a young J.S. Woodsworth, future founder of the CCF party. When the train came to the tiny station known as Ducks Station, now the village of Monte Creek, 30 kilometers east of Kamloops, it slowed down to a near crawl as it went through. No passengers were there to board, and no mail was set to come on. As the train pulled out of Duck Station, however, 
two figures leapt on board. For the next ten minutes, while the train rumbled westwards, the two figures moved along it towards the engine car. When the engineer stepped out of his car onto the duckboards, he suddenly came face to face with two masked men aiming pistols directly at him. Well, at first, the engineer couldn't believe someone was robbing the train, it became very clear very quickly that these men were serious. Miner and his partner, Shorty Dunn, had planned for the train to stop at a specific point several kilometers west of Duck Station, where they were to meet a third bandit. Like their first robbery, they were interested not in the passenger cars, and so they quickly uncoupled them from the train, confusing the passengers on it. The bandits, however, made a mistake. They mistook one of the express cars, carrying potential wealth for the robbers, as a passenger car. Thus, when they uncoupled that part of the train, they left it behind when they started going again. Now, another couple of kilometers down the track, the hijacked portion of the train was stopped once more. The bandits were sorely disappointed when they realized that all they had was the mail car. And the express car, which could have potentially been carrying gold and money and other riches, was left behind. Miner was furious. The mail clerk told him that mail rarely carried any money at all and that it was the express car where most of the cash would be kept. What Miner did not know, however, was there was registered mail in that very car that was carrying nearly $40,000. The mail clerk took a big gamble to deceive Miner, and the gamble paid off. Once the bandits were convinced that they had gone through everything, they ordered the CPR crew to continue on down the track for another kilometer before they jumped off and disappeared into the night. All the bandits had secured for their efforts was $15.50 in cash and some medicinal bottles meant to cure post-nasal drip. On top of it all, during the robbery, the CPR crew had gotten a very good look at the bandits, including the same tattoo on Miner's hand that was already reported in the press. This second robbery was a dismal failure, and Miner was going to pay a price for it. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder... You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.